Let's open our Bibles then to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And tonight we're going to move very, very, uh, we're going to stick our toe into the water of verse 10 as well. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, and then into verse 10. The term integration refers to the combining of one thing to another so that they become one whole. Integration, the combining of two things into one so that they become one whole. Its opposite is the term segregation, which carries the idea of keeping something distinct or separate. So if you can, if you can picture two parallel lines of, of, um, of thought or behavior that never touch each other, that would be segregation. But if we had, if we had lines that converged and then became one, that's integration. Far too often, we live our Christian lives as segregationists, not in the sense of segregation of people groups along racial lines, like as, as the term was used in the 60s, but we're segregationists in the sense that we enjoy a position in Christ, but fail to act experientially in accordance with that position. Far too often, we fail to act in accordance. So we have this, we have this line where we, we know what to do, and then we have a line where we're, where we're doing something, but the, line, the two lines don't match up. The line of what we're doing never seems to match up with what we know we're supposed to do. That's what I mean by we're living lives as segregationists when it comes to our Christian existence. Uh, there's a separation there. There's a disconnect, if you will. The Epistle of James had much to say about this, you'll recall. James is teaching us to behave well in trials. And you remember the summary statement of how we behave well in trials? By living consistently with who we are in Christ. That's what, he, that's what he really wanted, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And especially the quick to hear meant that we were to live consistently with who we are in Christ. We're to live consistently with what we know to be the truth, consistently with what we believe to be the truth. Paul, of course, serving the same master and inspired by the same Holy Spirit, teaches the same thing. He approaches it in a different way, to be sure, but it's the same concept, and we shouldn't be surprised. If he serves the same master, if it's the same Holy Spirit that's inspiring, you wouldn't think there'd be a contradiction. That's where Martin Luther got off the tracks a little bit. He, he wanted James thrown out because he saw these contradictions between James and Paul. I don't see contradictions between James and Paul. I think he misunderstood James. I think he understood Paul, but I think he misunderstood James. And tonight, we're going to see the integration, or at least begin to see the integration between what we know and what we do. And that's a very James-like message, but we see it here in Paul's second chapter of the letter to the Ephesians. The integration of position and experience is a key to living a successful Christian life. The integration of position and experience is key to living a successful Christian life. Life. I have no idea who came up with that phrase from the silly, silly bumper sticker, he who dies with the most toys wins. You, you seen that one? Uh, but it's really an inane comment, is it not? Um, I suppose we could chalk it up to a failed attempt at humor. I think we all do that sometimes. But, um, but it is, whether they meant it or not whether it's accidental or intentional, it's a fair expression of the materialist worldview, is it not? He who has the most toys wins. 
or he who dies with the most toys wins. That's a perfect, or at least a fairly decent expression of a materialist worldview. I suppose that if this life was all that there is, or if the cosmos is all that ever is, was, or ever will be, as Carl Sagan said, I suppose if that's true, then we might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die. And our Lord said something like that as well. We could add, and, and probably you need to try to accumulate all you can in the process. If materialism is all there is, then we, we, we would have a reasonable basis for living life differently, living life in totally here and in the now, in a very existential way, just the now. That would be all I would be concerned with. But success in life is defined differently, depending upon your view of reality. The Christian view of success would be quite different from the materialist view of success, wouldn't it? And by the way, success is not a bad word. Sometimes we think it's just a terrible word. It's not a bad word. Uh, but the Christian view of success is quite different from the materialist view. The Christian view of a successful life is measured by the degree of integration one has between doctrine and practice. That's what makes a successful believer. The successful integration between doctrine and practice, between that which is considered to be divinely revealed truth, and one's personal apprehension of that truth. Now, by, hap by apprehension, I mean more than comprehension. More than comprehension. I mean comprehension followed by seizing ownership of the truth to such a degree that we live consistently with it. God desires from us a fully integrated life with no disconnect between what we know and how we live. And that's what defines a successful Christian life. Not just what we do and not just what we know. It's the intersection of those two terms. The integration of those two terms, if you will allow me that word. The integration of doctrine and practice is what makes a successful Christian life. Now, this is so important. So important that we're probably going to spend more, I know we're going to spend more than just one lesson on it. It's, it's something that we spend a great deal of time with, with James, and now we're going to see it come up again in Paul. Remember how James didn't think much of the individual who knew the word but didn't do anything with what they knew? Remember, remember how he described that person? He said they were deluded. That's exactly right. They were deluded. They were self-deluded. Somebody else wasn't deluding them. They were deluding themselves. If we just know a lot and then don't do anything with what we do, then we're deluding ourselves. Now, there are some people that try to do without knowing anything. And I think they're deluding themselves as well. And they try to do without knowing anything and then call themselves Christian. And then you have that rare person that has a little bit of biblical knowledge and does a lot with it. This man, John, over in Jos, Nigeria, he had a little bit of theology, or maybe a medium amount of theology, and did a maximum amount with that theology. You know what? That's a fully integrated life. He did the most he could with the theology that he had, and then he defended Christ with his dying breath. That's a fully integrated life. That's a successful Christian life. Now, who do you think is going to get 
the stronger well done at the judgment seat of Christ. One who knows a tremendous amount of theology, but did just a little bit with it, or one like John, and I don't know a lot about it, but I know how he ended, one who has a medium or a modern amount of theology and died for Christ. Well, if I know my Lord, I'm guessing John's going to get one of those well dones at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, the ideal would be to have a lot of theology and then maximum application of that theology. That's what I mean by a fully integrated life. Now, the reality is none of us are ever going to have a fully integrated life. Jesus Christ was the only one from start to finish that had a fully integrated life. But if we're to be Christ-like in our behavior, and we are called upon to do that, then our lives need to be consistently integrated and as close to fully integrated as possible. Do you see what I mean? Now, now Paul's going to say the same thing here. This, these, this verse 10 is about a fully integrated life, meaning the, where a, a cohesion between doctrine and action. The reason I say this, you're out at a Bible study on kind of a miserable night, and, and I know that, and, and the room's you know, practically full, and I'm thrilled that you're here, because, I mean, this is a very, very important topic. So, I, in a sense, I know I'm, I'm preaching to the choir when it comes to the idea of learning the Word of God. You wouldn't be here, you wouldn't be at our church if that wasn't a priority for you, because that's a priority of my ministry, so teaching you the Word of God. But if you hadn't noticed, I have another priority that, that's, that's equal. I guess you, you can't have two priorities unless both of them are the same. This, I have an equal priority with that. Or a portion of that priority or an aspect of that priority is to encourage us to live these integrated lives so we don't go around saying stupid things. Forgive me. If we don't go around saying these silly things, like the, the Christian way of life is... Is, is thinking and thinking and then more thing, you know, taking in the word and thinking and taking in the word and thinking and taking in the word and thinking. Yes, that's fine as far as it goes. But that's not the end of it. And my friends, it's not biblical. It's not. We, we need to read the whole thing. And you'll see taking in the word is critical. It's absolutely critical. And to take it in in a way that's as pure as we can take it in. Some people are, are, are teaching the Word, and they're teaching it in such a sloppy way that that's a crime, too. But we need to take it in, and then we need to do something with it. Ever since the Reformation, the, the American word, at least the English word, works almost become a dirty four-letter word, the W word. You know? Well, the, the reason it became the, the W word was because the, the Reformers were so concerned, so absolutely concerned with salvation being by, being by grace through faith alone, that any mention of works was almost a negative. And it's, it, with our passage tonight, it's almost as if they believe that this paragraph ended in verse 9. It doesn't end in verse 9. It ends in verse 10. And, and verse 10 is the integration point. Verse 10 is where that comes together. This whole idea of grace now it comes together. Now we're supposed to do something with it. So I would never for a minute diminish the idea of taking in the word. All I'm saying is not only do we need to take it in, but the Christian way of life is more than just thinking. It's thinking and then doing something with it. And I say that with all due respect. Please, all due respect. But when something's wrong, I've got to call it wrong. And we don't stop there and think that we're mature. James says we're deluding ourselves, if that's what we think. Now, on the other hand, please, I always have to say this. It doesn't mean that you can 
As, as one fellow, actually he was a pastor at one point here in Houston, said, well, I've learned all the word that I need to learn. You know, No, I, mean, I know you may think nobody's ever done that. Even Paul didn't, I mean, even Paul at the end of his life, I don't think, did that. At the end of his life, he's, he's asking for the parchments. He's asking for the scriptures to be sent to him. So we never learn enough. You know, I've, I've had relatives that, that said, I don't need to learn any more of the word of God. I know enough doctrine. I just need to do something with it now. Well, I agree you need to do something with it now, but the first part's not true. You, you can never know too much, but you can do too little with what you know. Okay? So that's where we're going with this. In the second chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he emphasizes and elaborates upon something that's critical, a critical idea that he has in this letter, the, the idea of being in Christ, this positional relationship with, that we have with Christ. In verses 1 through 10, he explains our new position in Christ individually including where we stood prior to receiving this so great salvation. And we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were in as bad a position as we could possibly be. And then the key idea in these verses is going to be grace, as we have studied before. In verses 11 through 22, Paul is going to move to outlining our position in Christ corporately. Yes, we're in the body of Christ, but we're not the only ones in the body of Christ. We are part of that body with thousands and hundreds of thousands and hundreds of millions of other people. And so the key idea there is going to be unity. In the study last time, when we studied Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, we studied these two verses that strike at the very heart of the Christian message. Salvation is by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. Salvation is by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. But we saw there, and this is going to be critical to, to carry over in tonight's lesson, this is the key idea in that passage. Salvation is a work of God. I might could even add, salvation is totally a work of God. Completely a work of God. Grace is the objective basis of salvation. Faith is the subjective means by which one is saved. Grace is the objective basis of salvation. Faith is the subjective means by which one is saved. And human works play no part in the process. Some of us would like to think human works don't play a really big part in the process. You know, but, but surely I bring something to the table, don't I? No. Paul said it's not of works. Not of works. Yet it is of faith. The, means, the, the subjective means is faith. So in the very verses that, that we studied last week, we see that the faith can't be a work. Because he said, he says, faith is involved, but it's not of works. So the faith, logically and reasonably, can't be a work, because he's excluding works from it. So there's no objective basis. There might be a basis, but there's no objective basis for any human being becoming arrogant with their respect to their position in Christ. You see why this is critical for Paul to establish this before he goes to verses 11 through 22? You see, if we're all in by grace through faith, if it's, if it's a work of God to get us in there in the first place, and we saw last week, faith is a human responsibility, but it's not a work. But if we're all in there by, the, by means of grace, then none of us has any reason to be arrogant inside the body of Christ, and we all have a cause to, be, to behave in unity. You see, So he's going to set this up before he goes to that. So the words, through faith, by grace, through faith, denote the subjective means by which one is saved. Again, the objective means is grace. The subjective means is faith. Robert Leitner used to put it this way. 
Salvation is a work of God. And then he would shock us. And he would say, faith doesn't save anyone. And I'll tell you that too. Your faith doesn't save you. God saves you. You see, it's not this separate entity that's out there that's saving us. The, the hook. God saves us on the basis of faith. Think of it this way. You, you remember the old cartoons where the guy's always falling off the cliff and, and holding on to that, that one branch that always seems to be hanging out there, and the, the, the runner, whoever that is, is kind of hanging on? Or, or some of these movies where somebody's falling off the cliff and then somebody reaches a hand down and pulls the other person up. Now let's, let's say you're the one that's holding on to that branch for dear life, and then somebody leans over the side, puts their hand down there, and says, grab my arm and I will pull you up. You grab their arm and they pull you up. They're the one that did the work. You could, it's not a perfect example because you've got to hold on all that, but, that's, but just, just follow me here. You, the one that pulled you up is the one that did the work. We're hanging off the cliff by, by a very thin thread on our way to hell. God reaches down and says, all you've got to do is let me pull you up. That's all you've got to do. Just let me pull you up, and that's called faith. And as soon as you say, okay, Father, I'd, I'd like for you to pull me up, and you let go of the tree, and he pulls you up. He's not even saying, listen, you've got to grasp onto my hand. He's, he grasps a hold of you and just says, let me pull you up. If you'll, if, you'll, if you'll trust me, I'll pull you up. And so he pulls you up. So that's what I mean by salvation is the work of God. Faith doesn't save you. Faith is the subjective means. It's, it's our human responsibility. God saves us on the basis of faith. Now, this may seem like it's a, it's a technical theological idea that has very little ultimate application Au contraire, my friends, au contraire, not at all. This is, this is huge. This is foundational to Christian living. If we realize that we got into the body of Christ by grace in the first place, and we didn't earn it in the first place, then when God calls upon us to act in unity within the body of Christ, we're going to be more likely to do it if we realize we have no reason for boasting, either before men or for, from God. So verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace... You have been saved. Remember, that's that perfect participle friend of ours, the meaning you were saved in the past with the result that you continue to be saved right now. And because of the doctrine of eternal security, not because of the perfect participle, we know that we will remain saved forever. Once God has you in his grip, he's not letting you go. Our Lord himself spoke those words. So the perfect participle, you have been saved New American Standard, some of your Bibles may say you are saved. Both are legitimate. One is looking at it from this, this, this thing that's already completed, past action in the past. One is looking at it as, as to the current situation. Either one is fine, just so long as you realize what's going on there. You have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, that anyone or lest anyone should boast. Now, la last week we got... We introduced the idea that there was, there's a bit of disagreement about verse 8, especially when it comes to, and that, or perhaps this more accurately, this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And some people have proposed, and I believe they've gone way too far by doing this, that the idea of faith is the gift of God. That God is going to give somebody, certain individuals, faith, and then by 
extension, he's going to withhold that faith from other individuals, and those that he gives the individuals to will be saved, and those that he doesn't give the faith to will be, uh, continue to be lost in just condemnation is the way that they put it. In fact, many people who hold this particular position, that God's the one that gives you the faith, they would, they would hold that regeneration precedes salvation. In other words, you're born again first, and then you exercise the faith. The regeneration precedes the faith. And God causes you to be born again, then he gives you the faith, and then you, you're saved. That's not the, the biblical model. It's, it is a model, and a lot of people hold it, but they don't hold it with as, as strong of exegetical uh, validation as, as what you might think. In the Greek language, the, a pronoun should agree with its antecedent in gender and number, but not necessarily case, in gender and in number. Now, I'm, I'm not trying to, to uh, make you... Greek students tonight, certainly not Greek scholars tonight, but I, I do need to introduce this because it's germane to the discussion. And it will help you to understand why when, when somebody across the coffee table or dinner table says, oh, no, listen, uh, the faith itself is God's gift. And so he happened to give me the faith. He's not, you know, the reason that person's not saved, God didn't give them the gift of faith. Not exactly. It, what I've got up here is, is I've got it color-coded. This, this first word in, in red, kariti, is the word for grace. This, this, this is the word gar for, by means of grace, you are saved. That's the participle. Through, dia, with the genitive, through faith. This is the word for faith. And, or and so, this, this is the word tuto, this word in green, you see it over here as well, this word in tuto, green. This, not of yourselves. Now, there's no verb in there. It, there's a verb, a, a me, or to be, that should be inserted there. And this is, not of yourselves, it is, there's another a me that should be included, the gift of God. Is it a gift of God? And then the next passage is going to say, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, remember that the Greek relative uh, pronoun should agree in, in gender and in number with its antecedent. The thing is, this is, in Greek has three genders. Masculine, feminine, and neuter. This is a neuter pronoun. Tuto is a neuter pronoun in Greek. So to say that it's referring to the faith, that's why I've got it color-coded. It can't do that. These, these colors need to match up. It can't do that. In fact, some people say it re refers to the grace. Well, it can't really do that either, not by itself. Not by itself. So the, the idea that that the, the, the tuto there refers back to the grace, so therefore grace is a gift of God. It's, it's a nice try if you've only got the English text, but you ought to know better if you are at all proficient in Greek. Now, some people still make the effort that are proficient in Greek, a, a few, not very many. Uh, one one um, Greek scholar says that he's found uh, a couple of examples from Plato, and I think it's Xenophon in classical Greek, where the rule is broken, and the neuter can refer to something that's either masculine or feminine. But the point is, it's a rule, and it has to be broken, and they had to go back, and I would actually, I would challenge that. I'd like to see the examples that are used. Sometimes they're, they're misunderstood. But the very fact that, that you say, well, I can go back to Plato, who wrote several centuries before this, and I can find an example where this was done this way, it doesn't discount the, the thousands upon thousands of times it's not used that way. So, so they're admitting that they're having to break the rule in order to do that. 
So I guess you could do it, but you have to have some validation for why is the rule being broken here? You see what I mean? If you're going to say, well, I just think that's breaking the rule. Well, I guess you could say that, but you'd have to say, why do you think it's breaking the rule there? The only reason I, the only reason I say that is because some of the people that hold this claim the intellectual high ground, and it just irritates the dog out of me for someone to do that and to be so wrong about it from, from such a, a simple um, from some essential, simple standpoint, that's, it's a very wrong idea. The idea is this. What this, what this green two-toe can do, you look at, there's, there's nothing green up here, right? There's, there's nothing that's neuter. So while it can't refer to the pisteos or the carite or, or the participle, it can refer to entire sections. And so what the best understanding from the grammar is, is that this, the this there and this is not of yourselves, goes all the way back probably to verse 4. Remember we said the two sweetest words were, but God? It goes all the way back there. And so what he's doing is he's going back to that, and he's saying, we were dead, but God. And then in verse 8 he's saying, this is not of yourselves. So if it's not of yourselves, who is it of? But God. You see? So it goes all the way back and it covers that entire concept. Entire concept. So, so one could say, well, isn't, Faith included in that in some sense? Well, yeah, in some sense, certainly it is. Because we can't even believe on our own. And I don't know if anybody thinks we can. Whether you're a, what they call a Calvinist or an Arminianist, both believe in things called common and efficacious grace, where God has to give us the ability even to believe. But he doesn't force faith upon some and then re- re- remove the possibility of having faith from others. At least, certainly you can't say it based upon the grammar here. Then in verse 10, oh, verse 10, this critical verse for integration between faith and practice. In verse 10, which is actually the last verse of the paragraph, and that's so important if we're going to look at this. The paragraph doesn't stop with verse 9. It it stops with verse 10. This paragraph about grace and faith and the gift of God, it ends in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, there's that term again, you see that? This term is so critical to this letter. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Work's not a bad four-letter word in Christianity. That's what we were created in Christ Jesus for. Now, the created in Christ Jesus has to do with our positional relationship in Christ that he's been talking about throughout this entire letter so far. We were created in Christ Jesus. The reason he exercised grace and saved us in the first place and put us in this positional relationship with Christ was for good works. And it gets even better than that. Because it's not just good works that we've got to go out and beat the bushes for. For good works, which God, remember, but God in verse 4, he's almost doing it again. Which God prepared beforehand in order that we should walk in them or live in them or live consistently with them. But God, it keeps coming up, doesn't it? In, in chapter 1, verse 4, you remember that? Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that she would, we should be holy and blameless before him in love. From the very beginning, before there ever was an earth, God chose us. And, and there are a lot of different theories about how that happened. And that's not, that's not my point tonight. But in the same time, before the the worth ever was, he also, knowing that you would be part of the body of Christ, he also laid out this incredible plan 
for you to function after you're saved. And that plan's different for all of us. See, that's what can be so frustrating within the body of Christ sometimes. We see Billy Graham out there evangelizing thousands or hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. And we say, oh, I wish I was Billy Graham. Don't do that. That was, that was what God had prepared beforehand for Billy Graham. And the, to the degree that Billy Graham is faithful with what God gave him to do, then God is going to be pleased with what he did. But maybe God didn't, maybe God didn't ordain that for you. Maybe he ordained you to be a teacher in the second grade at William L. Cavill Elementary School in Dallas, Texas for 35 years. Maybe that's what he ordained for you to do. And to teach these kids and to be a, a godly model for these kids, these what, maybe seven years old, something like that, seven, eight years old, as they come through the second grade, you're a model for them, right? As they're at the age where they can start understanding the gospel. And maybe you were put on this planet to give two or three kids the gospel. And you had that opportunity and you did it. You had just fulfilled the plan that God gave you. It wasn't the plan that he gave Billy Graham. That's for Billy Graham. And I just pick him because everybody knows him. See, we, we get kind of wrapped up in this thing. Well, if I'm not a pastor, or if I'm not an evangelist, if I'm not, if I'm not teaching in Sunday school, then, uh, then there's something missing in me that I'm not fulfilling God's plan for my life. Not necessarily. If he ordained you to be that, then that's one thing. But some of us aren't ordained into that. Some of us are ordained to be caretakers, loving caretakers. And your whole life was put in a position so that you could do just that. And you do it and you're faithful with it. Guess what? You're every bit as faithful in your walk as is, let's use him, Billy Graham. And I'm just assuming Billy's faithful. That's between him and the Lord. I don't know what the Lord gave, but it seems like he was faithful with what he was given to do. This is such a powerful passage. It's such a powerful passage that we'll have to spend more than just the, the eight minutes or so that we have left tonight. But I want to start with the first phrase. The first phrase begins this way. For we are his workmanship. You see it on the board now, I've got the, the Greek text on the top and the English text, of course, here on the bottom, if, if you're inclined. I color-coded it again for you just so you could see it, and there's a reason why I did this. Again, I, I don't bring the Greek text out a lot for you, but I do it when I think it's really critical to, to helping you understand the text. Well, I just wanted to show you something here because it doesn't show up in English. You see the red his here? You see where that red his, his is? And this, by the way, means his. The red is in the, in the Greek sentence, it's the very beginning of it. See, it's different from in English. Now, what that means ordinarily is that the writer, in this case Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's emphasizing that word that's at the beginning of the sentence. That would be very awkward to do that in English. But one who is reading this in the Greek text, this would jump off the page at them. It's, it's his workmanship we are would be another way to put this. His, not ours, his. You see, again, this is all of God. Our salvation is all of God. And now guess what? Our spiritual life, our experience after salvation is also all of God. And this is why I showed it, because his workmanship we are. This word means for, which means that we're going to continue on with the same idea. For his workmanship we are. The, the word gar, and this is the word gar. It looks like a Y, but that's a G in Greek, and that looks like a P, but that's an R. That word gar lets us know that, 
Verse 10 begins by further explaining that salvation is God's work, not ours. We are God's workmanship. Now, the, the term that's translated workmanship is the Greek term poiema. Poiema. And I've got this in green here. You see that? That's the Greek word for workmanship. Poiema. Now, let me, let me say it again, and I want you to, to listen carefully and see if you might hear, you may hear, if you listen carefully, an English word there. Poiema. Poiema. Poem. Exactly. Philologists believe that this might be where we got our English word poem from. And if it is, it might make a little sense once I tell you what this word really means in its context. This word's actually only used twice in the New Testament, but it's used many, many times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament that we call the Septuagint. You see it abbreviated LXX sometimes. It's translated workmanship here, but it means in its context, deed, work, or watch this, work of art. Deed, work, or work of art. That has led some who have translated this to translated this word poema in verse 10 as masterpiece. Masterpiece. Isn't that beautiful? For we are his masterpiece. Isn't that, isn't that chilling? To, to me, it is. Now, I want you to notice here, too, just, just very quickly, in verse 8, for by grace you have been saved, not of yourselves. you see that? Look at verse 10, for we are his workmanship. Do you see how he very subtly changed from the second person pronoun to the first person pronoun? He's done that already in the chapter, hasn't he? You were dead in your trespasses and sins. But then when we get to verse 5, even we who were dead in our transgressions, what Paul's doing, he's not talking about Jews and Gentiles here. We're reading ahead too much to do that. He's going to do that later. But he's just including himself in this. I'm going to guess that outside of our Lord, that goes without saying, the Apostle Paul might have lived the most fully integrated Christian life of anybody. That's a guess. I have no way of validating that. Your guess is as good as mine. But I would guess that. And, and so what Paul is saying is here is, the life that I'm living, it, it's what God did for me. His. Very first word in the Greek sentence. His workmanship. His masterpiece we are. Not just you are, but his masterpiece we are. His masterpiece I am. He's including himself in the equation. We believers. Now this is believers in the context. And all of God's creation is a masterpiece in one sense, isn't it? I mean, what he creates is all a masterpiece, whether it's the Grand Canyon or whether it's Jungfrau Monk and Eiger in Switzerland or the Matterhorn. Uh, no matter what, what, is, what there is of beauty out there, God, it is a masterpiece of God. But the, the, the pinnacle of his masterpiece is the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that includes me. I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'm assuming... If you battle the elements to get out here tonight, that's you. You are God's masterpiece. We are all his masterpiece. Some of you will recognize this fellow. This is a man named Leonardo da Vinci. Cindy and I took a history of European art course from the guy that's the, the curator of the Smithsonian. 
And um, it was one of those ones we did on, on DVD. It's really a fun thing that we just did on Saturday nights for a while. Instead of going to the movies for, gosh, about a year and a half, we would, we would watch a, an art video. And I wanted to do that because I, I love art and I appreciate art, and I wanted to just, just have enough knowledge to be dangerous about what, how to identify good art. But I'll never forget one of the things that he said about Leonardo da Vinci. It, it grated on him when people call this man da Vinci. Remember the da Vinci Code? That's not his name. He would, nobody, if, he, if somebody said Da Vinci, he wouldn't have turned head. If they said Leonardo, they would have turned head. Da Vinci just means from Vinci. That's like Bruce from Houston. So his name, that's not his last name. His name is Leonardo. So just if you're ever talking to someone who knows something about art, you can throw that in, and they'll think that, they'll think that you knew what you were doing. Leonardo Da Vinci, though, was for most of his life uh, a very secular humanist. Uh, that's fair, I think. He was, he was the Renaissance man. He was a thinker. He was an inventor. He was a scientist. He was a mathematician. He was an engineer. He was a biologist. But he was also an artist. Some of you have been to the Louvre in Paris. And if you have, you've seen this. This is one of the most heavily guarded pieces of art in all the world. This piece of art, I believe, if I'm not mistaken... Uh, was so valued by Napoleon that when he was uh, in charge of France, he had the art removed from its location and taken to his bedroom, and it hung in his bedroom at that time. It was a little bit bold, perhaps. But this, of course, is the Mona Lisa, and this is one of probably the, the two most famous paintings in the world. It's certainly one of Leonardo's most two famous paintings, this and The Last Supper. Not all of his, but this is certainly one of the most famous, and I, I certainly am not a an art critic in, in any way well enough to tell you why, you know, what, what was so technically perfect about it. But, but apparently, those who know art are in, in general agreement that at least this is one of the best paintings that was ever painted. And certainly we would say that this is Leonardo's masterpiece. Now, there was another painting that he painted toward the end of his life, and that's this one. I've only showed you a portion of the painting, the, the top part, because this is the one that really counts. This is on the other end of the spectrum with regard to Leonardo's work. Some of you, I see by the nodding of your head, know, know what work this is. This is Leonardo's depiction of John the Baptist. Not John the Apostle, but John the Baptist. Now, you can, you can probably look at it and, and immediately see why this is not the most beloved of Leonardo's work. In fact, in fact, pretty much across the board, it's the least beloved of Leonardo's work, although it's the last of his works. He painted this. He began painting this approximately four years before he died. Now, this is a painting of John the Baptist. Now, the reason he died, obviously, is, is because he, he painted him in a very feminine way. And also, I don't know if you saw the Da Vinci Code. I didn't bother, but I, I read about it enough to know what was going on. The reason that this whole Da Vinci Code idea came about was because in that painting, the one who was depicting John has been painted in a little bit of a feminine way. So they so said, well, must, he must be painting Jesus' wife there. No, if you knew anything about Leonardo, you'd know that he, he just did that from time to time. So he paints John the Baptist in a fairly effeminate way as well. But the thing that is interesting about the history of this painting is this right here, the way his finger is pointing. Now, early on in the painting, at least, legend has it. And since Leonardo lived several hundred years ago, it's hard to validate whether this is absolutely true or not. But legend has it, at least art legend has it that originally this part, this cross, which is actually a staff that goes down this way, was not in the painting. And people would come and ask Leonardo, well, what is he pointing to? 
What is he pointing to? And Leonardo would never answer. And then finally, Leonardo painted the staff in there, which has a cross at the top. And Leonardo is alleged to have said, before he died, look, he's painting to the only thing that really matters. It's for that reason that I suspect, or maybe I hope, maybe it's faint hope, but I hope that Leonardo became a believer before he died. Leonardo was a Catholic, but he was a secular Catholic and really was not, a, not even a practicing Catholic. But toward the end, he did seem to show not just interest in things of, of science and art and mathematics and botany and making uh, instruments of war and all the other things and art. He did seem to show some interest in spiritual things. So it's my hope that he became a believer before he died, and I do it based upon the story behind this painting, the last of his paintings. So the Mona Lisa is Leonardo's masterpiece. But as far as God is concerned, and I'm assuming Leonardo trusted Christ, Leonardo was one of God's masterpieces. Just like in the same way, you're God's masterpiece, and I am God's masterpiece. We are, according to the first part of verse 10, we are his workmanship, his masterpiece, we are. Well, more on verse 10, much more on verse 10 when we gather together next time. Heavenly Father, oh, we are, we're so humbled by this, and we're so thankful, and we're so excited by it as well. To think that we are your work of art, and that it's solely of you, and, and our lives have, have such meaning and purpose, knowing that you have charted these things out in eternity past, and it's up to us to say yes. Yes to you at salvation once, yes to you many, many times after salvation with regard to, the, to our daily walk, and help us through your Holy Spirit to do just that. And until we meet again, Father, I pray that you would dismiss us with the riches of thy grace and peace and mercy upon us. And we'll ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.